Welcome to From the Producer's Office, a series of informal podcasts with Opera Holland Park's Director of Opera, James Clutton. In conversation with creatives and collaborators, we explore the process of putting opera on stage and how the artists involved approach their craft. Hello, my name's James Clutton, Director of Opera at Opera Holland Park. Thanks for joining this podcast. With me today, I've got the innovative, the inspirational director, Barry Kosky. Nice to see you, Barry. Hi, James. Lovely to be here. How are you? Very, very well. Well, today's Friday, so I'm okay. Yesterday, it's, almost... it's just about as good as it gets, really, isn't it? Um, and where are you physically at the moment? Are you in Berlin? I'm, I'm physically in Berlin, sitting on my sofa in my apartment, but... Um, um, I was actually, yes, two, two days ago in Munich and yesterday in the Komisch Oper. So I, right. I actually, unlike, I think, I think UK is a little bit different from Germany at the moment in many ways. So. In, many, in many ways. We'll get on but to today that. I'm sitting on my sofa in my house in Berlin with my dog <laughs> on the balcony, which you may hear, you may hear him bark. <laughs> someone out there. But how is it in Berlin generally at the moment? Is, you know, is lockdown being eased quite a bit? Uh, well, you know... <sighs> You know, if you want to be anywhere in a crisis, I think you want to be in Germany. I mean, mm-hmm. I say that with light irony in my face, um, <laughs> in, or in my voice. In face. Um, but, um, you know, Germany's been unbelievably lucky in, in, in comparison to mm-hmm. um, England in, or UK in comparison to yeah. America. Um, and for a country that's not an island, because I think if mm-hmm. you look at Iceland and Australia and New Zealand, uh, it's much easier to control these things yeah yeah germany is not an island it's the middle of you know europe so um it's it's been extraordinary now whether that's luck or whether that's you know incredible sort of structural things i think there's a both there's both elements when you think about the numbers in in other countries no it's terrible and also i mean you know i must admit i mean the germans whinge all the time and so you know i have to remind them i have to give a bit of perspective (laughs) you know well, let me tell you what's happening in the rest of the world. <laughs> yes. you know? Sometimes you just, I can't bear it. You get it. You have enough of this. And I think a lot of countries do that. If you're in the middle of something, you don't have, if you don't travel, yeah. if you don't have a perspective, you yeah. think, of course, everything is terrible and everything is, you know. And I must admit that, that the German politicians have surprised me um, mm-hmm. by their sort of unity Mm-hmm. Um, at the moment, I mean, it may go mm-hmm. horribly wrong in a few months, but at mm-hmm. the moment, and that the majority of the of the population um, understands um, yeah. how long that will last, no one knows. But we are we are, I think, weeks ahead of you in terms of the fact that the restaurants have opened, the shops have opened, yeah. everyone's trying to deal with the sort of, of the Corona world now rather than the lockdown yeah. world. No, it's, it's well, it's it's good to hear that there's more things going on there because we look at with envy from here. Uh, but let's talk about happier stuff. Um, let's just start at the beginning for you. Did you always want to be a director? No, um, it was, but it was on my radar. I mean, I think from age zero to ten, mm. um, I was like a sponge, and that um, my parents and my grandparents saw that anything artistic i was happy to do really as early as that right yeah yeah yeah. i mean it was literally i started piano playing when i was five but i went to the theater when i was three for the first time and i went when i was seven to the opera for the first time and then i started going to concerts when i was about six wow so they saw and then galleries i mean i was literally given um by my hungarian grandmother Mm. uh, in australia Mm. a sort of classic central european um arts education Fantastic. Um, Twelve thousand miles away from where she got hers, but um, so they 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 saw that I love classical music. I love musicals. I love mm. ballet. I love concerts. I love straight theatre. I love puppet. Mm. 
Um, I mean, I mean, I literally um, had a very blessed um, childhood in the fact that um, uh, my parents and my grandparents saw that there was something happening. And, and th- at that stage, I didn't know what I wanted to do. And then I, then I went through a period, I wanted to be a classical concert pianist. And right. then I got bored with that. And I thought, well, I'm, you know, I'm not good <laughs> enough to do that. And then I thought I could be a conductor. That was when I was about 11. I used to sit conduct right. with a chopstick in my bedroom. Brilliant. Chinese chopstick, you know, the Brilliant. Vienna Philharmonic and the, the Berlin of Philharmonic. Course. And I thought that could be good. Then I realized, no, I don't know, this doesn't feel right. And then I was doing a lot of acting at school. So right. I was constantly in. And then I had a sort of a was moment. Was encouraged at school? Your school you went oh, to? Oh, yeah, I was lucky. I went to a fantastic school. And we, we, we did a Shakespeare play every year. And yeah. we did a large other play. I mean, I, I played you know, Mercutio and Iago and Julius Caesar and Anthony Cleopatra. But there was something about acting which didn't, didn't, I didn't like it. I got very nervous and I didn't mm-hmm. like the lights. Uh, yeah. I still don't like going on stage during lighting right. rehearsals if the lights are actually on. I don't like it. Right. I feel very yeah. exposed. And, um, and so I thought, this is not for me. And uh, then, uh, but I loved it all. And I knew what, and, and, and then when I was at 15, uh, uh, a teacher at school, we, we had house plays. So he said to me, do you want to direct a house play? I said, why not? And wow. uh, he said, go up to the library and, sh- and find a one act play. So I went up to the library and I don't know, to this day, I don't know why a copy of Buchner's Wojciech was in the school library in Australia, Incredible. but there was a copy of the plays of Georg Buchner and I had, hadn't heard about the opera then, so I didn't mm-hmm. know Wojciech. And, but I yeah. went, what's this Wojciech? And I loved mm-hmm. it. And I thought, I'm doing Wojciech. It was an all boys school. So my first production that I did at 15 was a house play of Wojcik with an all boys cast. And I played the piano, you know, and, and, and um, basically that was the start. And I'd finished doing that. And I said, I know exactly what I want to do in my life. I don't do anything else. And that was, at that point immediately, you knew that was going to be a profession. It wasn't like, that was going to oh, be the job. Yeah. Not just a profession. I didn't want to do anything else, even if I wasn't going to be paid for it. I didn't want to do anything else. Right, okay. It was, I still don't view my, my, what I do as a job or a profession. I do it yeah. as a love that I'm paid for. Yeah, yeah, great. Um, and, and it shows. It shows where you are. Yeah, I, I never view it as a day's work. And I mm-hmm. and and um, you know, being an intendant of an opera house, that's work. <laughs> that's yeah, a job, yeah. as you know. You know, that's <laughs> yeah. a job. Yeah. But the um, directing, I mean, yeah. I, I mean, I don't like the word directing or producing anyway. You know, I mm-hmm. prefer I'm a conjurer. You know, I conjure things. Up. We like that. Yeah, I don't that's... like directing. Directing is what traffic cops do. It'd be great. That should be the business card. It really should. Conjurer. It? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but when you were, because when you just went into the rehearsal room with your school friends, then was that a strange thing? Just having that sort of responsibility, did, did or did that appeal straight away when you were saying, Do you know, you got to go over there, and this is how you're feeling? That just appealed. It just came, it was completely natural, organic and authentic. And I didn't even have to think about it. I just did. I mean, I'd been in lots of, I knew what a director did. Yeah. And I knew how a director was, what a director had to do. Mm. But, you know, that's very different when you're suddenly confronted with it. And yeah. it, was, it was like a fish, it was like a language. I spoke in a way, I never went to university. When I went to university, I studied mm. music history and, and, and literature. I didn't study theatre. I haven't had a day's theatre study in my life. I never, I mm. never um, sat in theatres and opera houses watching other people work. Right. Um, that's one way to do it. Um, and lots of great directors have, 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 um, have taken that path. But for me, there was, it, it just was entirely natural. It was like I, I found my voice very quickly and knew what I'd like and um and it's it it all just clicked you know and because it sounded like this beginning of that story you know your family obviously loved the arts and uh, was that a was that an accepted thing by them that this is what you wanted to do as well though because doing oh it for, yeah 
Well, I mean, yes, my father always said, you know, my, you know, we laugh about it now. My parents are both alive still in Melbourne, but I mean, he always say, well, maybe you should have just a, maybe you should go to university and study law or medicine just for, just in case, you know, <laughs> but it wasn't because he didn't want me to do, you know, theater uh, yeah. or opera. It's, it's just, he, you know, came from that post-war, you know, um, middle-class uh, idea that you should have a backup plan in case yeah, yeah. the artist thing didn't quite work out. It still happens now, though. I was saying to someone the other day that last year I did a sort of um, a careers day with a, with an actor. We were like, it was a speed dating careers day for kids. You know, they go in lots of tables, a law table, a finance, you know, advertising, whatever. And uh, me and this actor were at the entertainment table and you could see the parents physically pulling their kids past that table quickly you know yes <laughs> don't go to that table don't go to that table <laughs> not to that table but i mean they but, but that was done as a, it was it was it was done just because he worried about me and um and and then through love that wasn't done through um a sort of um doubt that it mm. may all go horribly wrong and i and i realized that that is um you know i've realized i didn't i, I didn't come to, I wasn't an opera director that came out of doing straight theatre. I wasn't a sort of, you know, I, I, I was immersed in, um, in, in music theatre in yep. all its forms. That's why I, I do what I do, because my parents took me to see yep. Jesus Christ Superstar at the mm -hmm. same time as they took me to see Madame Butterfly. Mm -hmm. And I saw, you know, um, touring international. I saw Lindsay Kemp and Stephen Burkhoff at the same mm -hmm. time I was seeing Chorus Line and yeah, watching yeah. The Muppets on television. Yeah. And if you really want to look at my work uh, all you, and to see where it all comes from, look at the first 15 years of my life and what yeah. I saw, and you will see traces and remnants of all of that on the stage now. No, it's great. It's really great to hear you speak like that and so passionately still, but I think that that's the thing with it. Jesus Christ Superstar is a great show. I love, I, I love Jesus Christ Superstar. Yeah, now I'm not, I mean, I still think it's one of the best musicals ever written. And certainly I think it's Andrew Lloyd Webber's, you know, masterpiece. I don't think he actually wrote anything as good as that ever mm -hmm. again. And it's, it's kitschy and it's whatever, but it's still, I think what I, what I, what I do admire about Jesus Christ mm -hmm. Superstar is that it's one uh, of the only, uh, in the last 50 or 60 years, it's one of the only major pieces of music theatre that revolutionised and radically changed. It was the first time uh, of a, a Dush component, you know, uh, without stopping, without, without mm -hmm. text, two mm -hmm. hours of music theatre with a rock band, yeah. with a very different way of telling stories, but it's still music theatre. And, mm -hmm. you know, I have to encourage some of my German colleagues to say, you don't, and there is no way that I would say Tristan and Isolde and Jesus Christ Superstar are the same, you know, in the, belong to the same group, but in its particular way, Jesus Christ Superstar is as, as radical as Tristan and Isolde. I'm not saying it's as good as, no, no, of course, no, no. but I'm saying that it took music theatre in a very brand new direction, just as, as Philip Glass did. And there are very few composers that you can say, mm. After the, after the sort of 30s that really radically rethinked what the possibilities of music theatre yeah. is. And, mm -hmm. and, you know, I mean, I can still go and see a production of Jesus Christ Superstar and enjoy it. And then the next night go and see Parsifal and enjoy that. I don't have to make a choice yeah. between what's better. And I can't stand snobbery in the arts. I think it's yeah. fatal. Let's go back to the, the sort of career path. So obviously you, you wanted to be a director. You obviously had that innate talent. The desire to do it. Um, the move to then becoming professional, you did a lot of work in Australia, but what was the first move to get there? How did that become from you wanting to be a director to being a director? Uh, again, uh, very easy and painlessly and 
I think, unusually easy. Um, <laughs> I, I went to university and it's the Australian universities in the, in the 80s, this was, so it's all changed now. They're very much like the English universities where a lot of directors went to mm. direct. So I studied music history and uh, English literature and directed 15 productions. Um, I started yeah. up my own sort of student theatre and I directed four operas um, <laughs> within that. And my very last opera when I was there, I, I didn't ever get my degree. <laughs> um, they, they wanted to throw me out a few times because I just didn't go to lectures. I was too busy like doing, doing shows. But um, I, did a, I did a double production of um, Vedekin's Lulu plays um, with actors and Don Giovanni with singers. And I did it in the same set. So I did two productions. Uh, I rehearsed two productions at once. And um, this, these two productions were seen by um, the director of the Melbourne Festival. Um, uh, and he had been recommended to go and see this young upstart. And he came to see the Don Giovanni and walked up to me and said, hello, my name is John Truscott. I want you to direct an opera for the festival in, in two years. Would you do that? I said, why not? Um, so that, that's literally how it started, James. And, 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 and from that day, that was, that was 1989, I think, or 88, 89. Um, I've never been out of work. So, you know, I've been very lucky in that respect too. So this is the longest time. This last, the next, last two months yep. is the longest time I have ever not rehearsed. Wow. Yeah. I mean, and people are feeling it, aren't they? That they're really missing that stuff, you know, of, yeah, of the work. My body is, is not is is constantly, you know. So I'm I'm directing my dog in dog shows at home now, so, <laughs> which you won't see publicly. Yeah. But I was I was I was. But going back to the, I was I was, and then and then I then I got jobs in uh, in Australia, both in opera. I started uh, at the same time. I started doing opera and I started doing um, mm. straight theatre. And 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 in Australia, I just juggled those two. What do you think about people um, that have a problem with that sort of the juggling? Because I, I love it. I came from a straight theatre background and moved into opera. Um, and I think it, it benefits both sides. But, you know, some people think, are oh, you an opera director? Are you a theatre director? But you're a director, aren't you? You're happy with that. You are a director. That's what you do. And I don't believe in labels. And I don't believe that um, people in the arts should have labels. Listen, there are fabulously talented filmmakers mm -hmm. who have who come into the opera and direct shit shows. I mean, there are, we've seen them, yeah. but there are also fabulous film directors who had enormous successes works the other way. There are fantastic theater directors that don't become great film mm -hmm. directors. Mm -hmm. In fact, there are very few actually that become great film directors. Cause I think the mediums are too different, yeah. but there are people that do that. And there are people from circus that direct an opera that are fantastic people from the choreographers that direct the opera that are fantastic. I, I, I don't think, that we should be all concerned about where people come from or what background they come from. We can only judge what they deliver on the stage. Yeah, ultimately, end. that's the most important thing. What is the experience for the audience at the night uh, of the, uh, the night? And, you know, there are lots of professional opera directors who mm -hmm. shouldn't be professional opera directors too. I mean, it works <laughs> the other way too, but I, but I do think that, I think that one of the, one of the, one of the very important things I think about is that, and I've seen this with, very brilliant stage directors or theatre directors who are coming into opera for the first time mm. is that a lot of them are frightened. A yeah. lot of them um, don't understand music enough. Mm. A lot of them treat the music as just a soundtrack, like you would in a film. 
Yep. And a lot of them don't understand that it's a very different vocabulary you have to use in a rehearsal room for mm -hmm. a singer than you would an actor. An actor, you don't talk about technique at all. But with a singer, you have to. Because if you want them to roll or jump mm -hmm. or whatever, they have to breathe properly. They have to say, I can do this, but not this. There's a negotiation that goes on. Yeah. And there are things that are sometimes possible and sometimes that are impossible. And this negotiation that goes on mm -hmm. is quite quite interesting. In my experience, I am very lucky to have worked with a lot of opera singers who are actually better actors than a lot of straight actors. So I've never had the experience like some of my theatre director colleagues who will say, oh, these yeah. opera singers, they can't act. I mean, no. that's just nonsense. That's pure nonsense. and utter nonsense. It is absolute nonsense. I completely agree with that. Um, with on a few years, and obviously you, you went to Germany to the, uh, the Comité Opéum in Berlin, um, uh, and you directed before you took over as Antonin or, or yeah. yeah, yeah, no, I was, I mean, I, I, I was, yet again, you know, amazingly lucky um, and, and, and easy. I directed, I came to, I moved to Berlin, Vienna to take over a theatre in Vienna, a, a, a small theatre in Vienna. And then I started directing the Commission from 2003. And after my seventh production, in fact, my seventh production coincided with when they asked me mm. to take over the theatre and and it's interesting for two reasons firstly because um the Berlin public knew my work the 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 house knew my work and it was seemed a very natural fit yeah. um and secondly at the Komisch Oper um the tradition of the house from when Walter Felsenstein started it in 1948 is that it's sort of run by a director it's an artist's house yeah. um which a lot of opera houses aren't so yeah. it was assumed my my predecessor, Andreas Homoki, who now runs Zurich, ran it for sort of 10 years. And before mm -hmm. him, um, Harry Cooper wasn't the intendant, but he was mm -hmm. the chef regisseur there for over 25 years. Um, mm -hmm. And so this, this, it seemed a, a perfect fit. And mm -hmm. I had really never assumed that I'd be running an opera house uh, mm -hmm. before because I thought, well, that's just administration job. And yeah. I had never understood until I'd been in Berlin, oh, actually, you, there are certain houses where you actually can yeah, I mean, it's a hell of a lot of work. I mean, I, you know, as you, as you know, I, I'm the director of opera, um, and, but I don't direct myself, never wanted to. Um, and that's, that's a bit of a job, but directing shows as well. I like, I like the distance that it gives me with choosing directors and freeing them up from that. But, it, but you've, you've made this incredible success of mixing the two. And I, I would say that it doesn't always work that for me. I, you know, opera houses run by directors, but obviously you've, 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 you've absolutely smashed it there. I mean, I've loved it every time I've been there. And what I love about it particularly is there is a, what you've created and you engender is this genuine feel throughout the entire company and the house, all of the staff in every way. And, uh, you know, I've said to you off, off, off recording, you know, I, I look up to you very much on that. I think that what you've done there just is, is really inspirational to a lot of us. But when, when I was there uh, the first time, I saw your production, Magic Flute, the, uh, the animated one, which I think was just a, an amazing piece of work. And I'm going to get this story slightly wrong because you told me it may be six, seven years ago. But um, you you asked the uh, video and animators to join you on it, and 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 you said that they gave you the best. You said I want you to do Magic Flute with me, and they and you said they gave me the best possible answer, which was, "What's that?" Yes, that is absolutely right. Susanna Andrade and Paul Barrett, who are 1927, who who collaborated with me on, on this production of Magic Flute, um, gave the, the most fabulous answer. They, already, they not only said, what's that? Um, when I told them to go and listen to it, um, they, 
they did what we all in a way do now. And that is to go on YouTube and right. made the fatal mistake of watching it. Um, <laughs> and it rang me three days later, say we've been watching the magic flute mm. and why on earth do you think that we would be interested in doing this? Cause they thought that what they saw on these other productions is, yeah. is, you know, what I was asking to be done. So, um, it, it was two wonderful um, moments of, um, of that. But I, I, think, I think what was very interesting about that is that um, I had said to my team in Berlin, I'm not doing a new magic flute it's, it's, mm -hmm. it's, it, unless I know how I'm doing it. It's one of those operas that I don't think you say yes to doing mm -hmm. unless you've already had a very strong conceptual idea or unless you've got a particular artist that you're collaborating with uh, to, 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 to put that on the stage. It's not like most of the repertoire because the Magic Flute, like with Fidelio, there's a few of these operas that are just like director graveyards and yeah. um, it's really, really tricky. And the, 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 to do it in the Kumish Opera, new production in Berlin, I said, we have to have something that no one's ever seen before and it has to be something different. And I was literally a few months before saying to the team, I don't think we should do Magic Flute for the first right. season. I think it's too right. difficult because there was much pressure for me to do a new one. And um, and then I went to see 1927 in Hanover. I just went, oh, after watching the show for 30 seconds, I said, oh, this is how you do it. This is how we do Magic Flute. For, the, for anyone listening that hasn't seen it, can you just give a brief outline of what, what you did with it? Because I thought it was one of the most amazing nights I've had. Well, it's, it combines the 1927 style that Susanna and Paul had developed with a sort of larger operatic style. And that is a combination of two and three dimensional work. So it's not a video mm -hmm. on which singers stand in front of. This mm -hmm. is a interaction between mm -hmm. uh, live singers and uh, animation uh, mm -hmm. with Paul Barrett's uh, handmade um, animation. And it's a very large screen. And on this large screen, um, uh, the singers, some are sometimes are literally sort of um, uh, 15 meters in the air, um, are, inside the animation mm. and are um, acting with and um, uh, against and to this uh, um, uh, uh, animation. Oh. And um, so, for example, um, uh, you know, uh, a, an animated bird can land on the hand of the performer uh, and then the performer pushes up their hand yeah. and the bird flies. That was and the moment I was going to mention there because when I saw that, I was, you know, I, I often say this thing, Barry, that I don't like going to the opera because if I, if I don't like it, I can have all the complaints. Why did they do that? And if I do like it, I get incredibly jealous. And I just sat there watching that production and think, oh my God, I wish we'd produced this. Yeah, well, it's, well, thank you, James. That's a very nice thing to say. But, and it was, um, I mean, it was three years work, nearly three years work. And, and the, there's about 900 animation video cues and it, it's, it's a very, it looks very simple and mm. is horrendous to rehearse and whatever. And we had no idea it would be the success. We premiered it in um, November, 2012. Uh, it was the second big mm. production of my, my first season. And, um, you could feel the audience in the first five minutes go, <gasps> and then there was an ovation uh, at the end of the first act and yeah. there was such a buzz and we sold out 15 performances uh, within 24 hours after mm -hmm. we premiered. And subsequent to 2012, it's been seen in over 30 different cities um, mm -hmm. and by about um, 700,000 people. Incredible. Um, Incredible. Pretty amazing.
Incredible. So let's talk about, because uh, I, I want to say a couple of things to you about it, but I want your take on it first. Your public in, in Berlin that come to your theatre regularly, let's talk about that. Who do you think they are? Because it was a big cross-section when I was there. Okay, just, just for, for your listeners uh, who may not know the Berlin opera world, um, it's the only city now with three major repertoire opera houses. It, mm-hmm. it, 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 um, it's... it's Paris was the only city that you could compare it to in the past, mm-hmm. but now Paris, they're, they're stagione houses um, uh, mostly now. These are three full um, opera repertoire opera houses with ensembles, permanent chorus, permanent orchestra. One is run by Daniel Barenboim, the Staatsoper. One is run by Donald Ranikels, which is the Deutsche Oper. And the other one is run by me, which is the Komische Oper. Three different histories, three different houses, yeah. but both with amazing histories. Mm-hmm. Um, the Staatsoper, you know, is, 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 you know, this is the theater where Wozzeck was, Wozzeck was premier, where Eric Kleiber used to conduct and the Deutsche Oper, you know, was, was, has an amazing history of, mm-hmm. of, of being a singer house of, mm-hmm. of big, big voices where Jesse Norman started, where, you know, every great famous singer has sung. And, um, so it's amazing. These three houses, uh, between all three of us, we sell every year over 700,000 seats. Um, so anyone who says that opera is dying needs to come to Berlin. Anyone who says that opera is elitist needs to come to Berlin because through the amazing German government subsidy, you can get in to 12 euros, uh, 12 euros to see uh, an opera. And the diversity of the audiences is astonishing. We've got the youngest audience because of the program we do and also because we do operetta and musicals and a very big children's opera project. We do two huge children's operas in the main auditorium every year. 40,000 seats are sold just through um, around 10-year-old kids uh, in Berlin. Um, so we've got a slightly younger, but, but the commercial opera has always had the easiest. I mean, the metaphor I used when I started was that if you imagine that the Deutsche Oper is like Moby Dick, um, the Staats opera is Jaws, um, um, and we're Flipper, you know, the dolphin, you know, the, the, the little dolphin that everyone likes and is the yeah, smartest yeah. actually. Yeah on the block um and that's very clear so just if if your if your audience want to understand it it's 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 moby dick jaws and flipper and so our audience is made up it's very very diverse i mean the average age um in our latest survey the average age is i think 48 um which is fantastic um and we get i mean i'm 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 not ageist i think uh, my favorite my favorite audience is when i look out and i see from 8 to 110 yeah, cool, i sure. do not like sitting in an audience of young groovy hipsters because they don't concentrate uh, enough and i don't like sitting in an audience made up of over 80s yeah. and i i love when you look around and go who the hell got all these people together. And I think one of the best things and one of the most joyous compliments that I get from so many people when they come to Berlin and come to the Komische Oper is where the hell do all these people come from? Because when yeah. you come to my productions of the Komische Oper, you are sitting next to two leather queens. Behind yeah. you are your 80-year-old um, opera subscribers. There's two gay boys in front of you. Uh, there's a family three rows in front of you. There's 10 tourists speaking Japanese or Spanish behind you. And you don't, you can wear jeans and t-shirt or you can wear, you know, a suit and a, an evening dress. It doesn't matter. It's Berlin. No one cares. In fact, if you came naked to my house, I think people would just raise an eyebrow and go, oh yeah, you know, really, it's, it's, it's Thursday. Really, no one gives a shit. And, and it's, and this no one gives a shit thing is a Berlin thing. And it's also a commish opera thing. And yeah. 
um, it immediately creates a different uh, buzz in the in the. And also, I'm blessed. We've got a opera house that wasn't destroyed uh, during the war. It was one of the only houses, along with the Berlin Ensemble. Uh, the bomb came through the um, ceiling and and destroyed the chandelier, but didn't go off in mm -hmm. the stalls. So it was renovated, of course, in in the in the in the in the fifties and sixties. But it's still mm -hmm. essentially what it was when it was built in in the eighteen nineties. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's a beautiful place. Um, and also, you, you, you mentioned it there, and it was something I was going to bring up with you as well, was the, you do do uh, musicals, uh, musical theatre, and, and, and different bits and pieces throughout the whole repertoire. Um, and that obviously works. And in a lot of places, that doesn't work so much. There's a really, but you get a real cross-section. Do, do all those different audiences go to every, you know, not every single show, but do they go, go to one ballet or one opera or whatever? Yeah, there's, it's, a, it's a good question. It's very interesting. I thought always that people would like go and see everything, but actually they don't. We, we'd like to think as, as people who run theatres, oh, people go and see an opera and then go, oh, I'm going to go and see what the musical's like. Or we think that people come in going musicals, oh, well, I want to experience West Side Story or Fiddler on the Roof. I'll buy a ticket to Moses and Aaron. Yeah. It doesn't happen. No. So... What, I, what, we, what we've developed with the team is to basically say, there's no such thing as an audience. There's not the audience. We have audiences. Mm -hmm. and, we, and if there's crossover, if people do want to, we make it as easy as possible for people to say, oh, let me try that. But the facts are that there's an opera audience and some of that opera audience will go to musicals and operetta. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. There is an operetta audience and some of them will go to opera and there's a musical audience and very few of them will go to opera and that's okay. I don't mm -hmm. mind. I don't want to, I mean, it's, it's very clear if they want to come, they can afford to come. No one says mm -hmm. that they're financially disadvantaged um, or they can't buy a ticket. Um, mm -hmm. or, so um, if they want to come, it's fine, but I don't mind that. I don't, I don't think I don't want to put my energy into trying to convince people to um, come I, yeah. I think that we should say to people, this is the smorgasbord. This is yeah, the yeah. buffet. I, I and you can, you can choose what you want from the buffet. Yeah, um, I completely agree. And I think sometimes we do all try and chase audiences that we're not going to get. And it's just a waste of energy. We'd like, we, 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 can, we can dream about that wonderful crossover audience till the yeah. end of time, James, but it's yeah. factually impossible. Yeah. There's a, there is a crossover. There are people that go to musicals, operetta. There are these wonderful freaks. God bless them. Yeah. We love them. We love them. We love them. But I would much rather say, look, there's a huge amount of audience. I mean, we have performed, uh, we've had the rights for West Side Story now for seven years. We perform it every two years, my production. I've and seen it. Yeah, yeah. The Fiddler on the Roof. And, and this is, they're sold out there. But you cannot get any seats. Yeah. Um, and we're a repertoire house, so we do maybe 15 performances a year um, of the pieces. Yeah. But so that's it's sold out. You can't get any seats. And you go there and it's a completely different audience. And I say that we are, we are giving them a musical experience because there's a 60 piece orchestra. It's, yeah. you know, West Side Story we do with 50 people on stage. Yeah. Fiddler on the Roof we do with 140 on stage. No Broadway or West End company can do this with an orchestra of 50. Yeah. And so we say, this is the experience of the musical yeah. Yeah. that we are giving you. We are not giving you a West End or a Broadway experience through the, yeah. the wonderful German subsidized system. I can put 140 people on stage in Fiddler on the Roof and it's the Stadel because the Stadels were 140, yeah. not 27 or 30 <laughs> people. I always, my heart drops when I go to see Fiddler on the Roof on the West End of Broadway and you know, you have tradition and then, you know, they come in through one by one and there's like 12 people and you go, well, that's not like no Stadel I know. 
So but you mentioned it there, and you mentioned it earlier on about the subsidy. I mean, we all look with envy at the the brilliant German uh, government subsidy of the arts, and obviously they uh, they support the arts very well. What do you do with that, Barry, as regards to tickets? Does that enable you to do a good um, a, a, a good lower price on tickets out there? Look, I know these arguments because I lived in Australia, and Australia is 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 like the UK, where you have to you, you the whole thing. I mean, I don't like the word subsidy anyway. It's a, it's a terrible word. I call it investment. Yeah, it's an it's, investment. It's not a subsidy. Mm-hmm. It's an investment. You're investing in something that's important. And I think that um, um, uh, so I'm used to the arguments about you know government investment and all this sort of stuff from Australia. And I think what 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 the what this what the budgets in Germany allow us to do. Uh, there's a few things. We, we have no boards here. Uh, my boss is the mayor of uh, Berlin and the cultural secretary. Therefore, I am given a budget of 33 million euros a year. Of that, we make have about 7 million euros in, in box office and a small sub, uh, sponsorship. Mm-hmm. And we are basically told, you're in charge. I don't have to present my program to anybody. Really? Nobody. As long as we are in the black, as long as we are not going into debt, and as long as we are relatively successful uh, right. in terms of what we're doing, no one interferes. So mm-hmm. this is a, you're treated as a grown-up, not as a child who's given a few little sweets and told, we will then make sure if you need more sweets to give you the sweets, but don't you know, abuse this privilege. Right. So the entire... Uh, structure of communication between politicians and artists or administrators is grown up yeah. and trustworthy. Yeah. Fantastic. Second thing that neighbors do is that having that subsidy, 70% of our subsidy goes into the artist salaries and the administration and tech into wages, yeah. but you still have then 30% of the money left over to produce work yeah. to say to costume designers and to stage directors, think big. We're not yeah. asking you to do this on three shekels, you know. Yeah. And then the third thing, which is the most important thing, is that people don't understand that this government investment at this level enables the company to sponsor each seat, reduce the uh, cost of each seat. Yeah. So that the subsidy enables you to say to people, you can come to the opera. Our highest ticket at the moment is 72 euros. Right, great. And our lowest is, I think, 10 euros. Mm-hmm. And, and this means that no one can pay. Now, pop concerts and sport events are more expensive now. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Um, and I think that what we, what we are very bad in the opera world of doing is explaining to people one of the reasons why it's so expensive is it's the most labour-intensive yeah. performing arts, an yeah. orchestra, a chorus, yeah. singers, the technical elements, it's very labor intensive. Every to bring this every night costs a lot yeah, of yeah. money. I often say to people, if you it doesn't work like this, obviously everyone understands it doesn't work like this. But I often say to audiences when they're talking about cost of tickets, you know, look at everyone you can see in the pit or on stage and divide your ticket price by that amount of people and you're giving them each 50 pence or something. They're worth, they're, they're, they've deserved that 50 pence now, haven't they? And that's not even going into all of the backstage salaries or the, yes. that's just the, purely the people you can see. And if, you, if you're spending 50 quid, that's how much is going to everyone. And I think you're right. We, we, we sometimes have to rephrase the argument. I was talking to my team this morning and it's a very sort of West Wing thing about not accepting the premise of the question when we're given the wrong question, you know, reframe it and make it a question. It's about, 
you know what we create as uh, as arts companies is 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 good for people i think sometimes we lose the economic argument if we keep going on about the economic argument which is very powerful but we've got to get into people's heads and say you, you people really want this to they want to go to the theater well, even more than that james even more than that the three pillars of any i believe democratic civilized society anywhere as an education system, a health system, and a cultural system. Absolutely. The entire society is built on these three things. Yeah. And that we need as artists and as administrators and cultural people is to really start pitching and explaining this to the general public mm -hmm. that without this, yeah. without this column of, of education and health and then culture, mm -hmm. without this column, uh, our societies are, are not just not interesting, they don't work. Yeah. And to can remind people that the only thing that's left over mm. when societies move on and cultures move on is culture. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So, you know, what we have from ancient Greek are the ideas of the philosophical, political ideas of ancient Greek and ancient Greek drama and the beginnings yeah. of it. That's what stays. And mm -hmm. that we have to try in, in the English speaking world, because the German world is different. It's different. Mm -hmm. It's like Russia in Russia and Germany. I just use these two countries because I see, I think it's very, very similar. Mm -hmm. The, the, they don't discuss these things. There's no difference between the left wing and right wing mm -hmm. political mm -hmm. arts policies in these mm -hmm. countries. Well, not in Russia, there's only one policy in Russia, but in <laughs> Germany, there's no difference. It's just the, the funding keeps going on and yeah. it would go on if the Greens took over, it would still be the same. This means yeah. that it's so entrenched in their cultural DNA that they don't even think about it. Yeah. And, and UK is like Australia. Well, it, Australia is probably worse, actually, than the UK. The UK has this very weirdly contradictory relationship with culture. They love it. Mm. You produce extraordinary artists, amazing artists, mm. um, and, and in, in every thing, and great audiences. But there's this weird love-hate relationship with culture. Mm. And it's always been that case. It was like that in, in the 17th century, 18th and 19th century. And, yeah. and, and, and that's always quite tricky to get your head around in the UK. Um, you were saying about the, the ancient Greeks and everything, but I, I have this argument, it's sim very similar basis. You know, we go back to even, even in the uh, cave in time, the things we remember, the, the cave paintings, you know, the, 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 the art that stays there, that's how we work out when it was and you know looking at how how civilized they were and things well even more than that james what we have from the from from that time is storytelling around the campfire that's essentially where opera and theater started so yeah. you know it is what we do now is one of the only things maybe with eating sleeping having sex and farting is that is the only thing that links us up with our ancestors and that is this need to mm -hmm. tell stories and to use metaphors Mm -hmm. to explain what the hell we are doing on this planet. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And this is not an indulgence. This is not a decadence. This is not a, um, a thing that's to fill in three hours before you have dinner somewhere. This is much more important and much yeah. more essential to our notion of, of, of who we are on the planet yeah. than most of the things we do. No, no. And also, right in this lockdown period, a lot of people have been saying when they haven't been able to do a lot of other things. Uh, what have you been watching on the Netflix? What have you been listening to? What have you been reading? All basically arts things. That that's what they've been doing, you know, when they're and cooking. You know, I was saying, well, it's not a great household here at the moment. And we've got my, my wife works in food and the hospital food industry is really in trouble at the moment as well. And the theater industry. So we're saying we've, we've picked two, we've picked the two wrong horses at the moment. Yeah. 
<laughs> performing arts and food mm. but they're both crucial in the in the thing that's what people are doing now they're eating they're cooking and posting things online or they're listening to to music or reading books or whatever yeah and if people want to understand it i mean culture is eating for the soul yeah. you yes. know that's essentially what it is so yeah. you know if we don't nourish the soul we're dead yeah no, they're beautiful. But when I was in Berlin, one of the times as well, I was on Opera Europa conference and um, I went one of the uh, things hosted by your team was the uh, outreach um, section. And we're up on a park. have got a big outreach uh, commitment always has. For me, it's intrinsic. It's not an add on. It's just intrinsic. And we, we've got an open day tomorrow. It'll be, it'll be finished by the time this podcast goes out, but we've got an online open day for people to do conducting classes and dance class and everything. Um, and I and I think I'm really sort of near the top of people that, in the UK that lead these things through. I was in Berlin at your place, just blew me away because there was such a commitment to it. There was two of your guys doing this uh, um, presentation, but then it turns out saying, you know, you two do all this, and I said, they're, they're, they're the people that work with the outreach with the Turkish community. That's you know, that's what their their thing is, and it was just just this incredible thing for me. And I came back, my team will tell you, I came back so inspired by that, that we, I'd had this idea about working with the Red Cross and refugees for a while, but always thought it was too big for us. And then after that weekend in Berlin, I came back and we just started it straight away. We, worked, we started working with them the next week. Okay, we're going to do this. And it just opens up those doors of just the desire from the top, from you there, from saying, we're going to do this. And, and just if it gets that thing, and, and you work with the... Um, the Turkish community very much in Berlin. Yes. Right? I mean, I think it's, I mean, um, 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 uh, firstly, that's, it's, it's wonderful and very moving to hear that you're inspired, James. Thank you. That's, that's great. <laughs> I mean, I mean, I arrived, look, you know, to me, you know, the first thing you do when you come into a city that's new and you're not from that city is go, okay, well, how does the city tick? How does it work? Mm -hmm. Berlin has the largest Turkish community outside Turkey in Europe. So, so for me, it was very, very important to say, okay, these people have never been into the theatre. Okay, I don't expect suddenly we're going to sell 50,000 seats to yeah. uh, Turkish people. I don't like to sort of say that we're doing a Turkish program. I said, but they're not going to come here if, unless we... Mm -hmm go to the Turkish community and say, hi, we're the Komish Orpa, whatever. And this involves doing various things from top to bottom. So one of the first things I did was we installed um, uh, our surtitles uh, in the seats. We're lucky we, we, had a, we got a government grant yeah, that, yeah. because it costs uh, one and a half million euros to, to put not the surtitles above the stage, but mm -hmm. in the seats. Very few theatres can afford that because you have to take out all the seats and it costs mm -hmm. a lot of money. Now we have seven languages um, there. So right. you can choose your language. And so you can choose English. And so it was it just assumed that we do English, French or you know, Japanese mm -hmm. or something. And I said, eh, 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 and <laughs> Turkish. Yeah. And, you know, the cynical Berlin press said, yeah, how many Turkish people are going to come? And I said, I don't give a rat's ass how many Turkish people come, whether it's one or whether it's a hundred. That one person will come and say, thank goodness, I don't, um, I can now read it in Turkish on the screen. I said, that one person may be a genius conductor or, you know, when they grow up can be a fantastic composer and yeah. that we've inspired them. So who knows? Yeah, so yeah. we said, well, there are symbolic things you can do like that. Mm -hmm. And I said, and the other thing, we have to go into the Turkish community. So we set up a whole touring thing um, with um, young singers and with uh, musicians that we go into Turkish um, old people's homes, Turkish schools, um, yeah. and give people a first taste of the opera. And maybe they will then come. We see that people do come. Then mm -hmm. we said, okay, that's one thing. Then we have to do some Turkish um, shows. So we did mm -hmm. some children's operas in Turkish. And I said, the German 
kiddies, Fritzi and Heidi and Helga have to sing in Turkish. It's not just about saying we want the Turkish community to come into the theatre. I said, I want Fritzi and Heidi to go home with their Turkish text, considering that they have classmates that come from this land called Turkey and speak Turkish. And I want them to sing in Turkish. And we've been doing that, which is unbelievable because let's face it, if you have a group of 60 kids and most of them have never sung in Turkish and they're singing in Turkish, this is one way you can really build bridges. Yeah, absolutely. Um, no, no. I mean, honestly, that's what knocked me out when I was there and, and it just, it raised my expectation of what I needed to do and also um, seeing different horizons of what you, of what one could do, you know, rather than being, you know, could we do schools and we do a lot of uh, care homes and hospitals and, I'm very proud of it, but it was okay. Just, just lift the horizon a bit. Just look at what else, what else you can do. Yeah. And for example, then of course we had the huge refugee um, uh, uh, drama in 2015. Although the whole thing, I mean, I've been busy with the idea of refugees and exile for my whole life because all my grandparents came to Australia as refugees. So it's something very natural for me. And the whole of Berlin, half of Berlin is full of exiles and refugees and lonely yeah. lost souls anyway. So, so it all started to happen. And, and of course, then being Germans and being very serious, a lot of my colleagues um, thought, well, let's put on concerts of, you know, Bruckner and, and Brahms and, you know, refugee concerts and, you know, we are for the refugees and let's let's go into the refugee camps and play Bartok and Schumann and whatever. And I went, I said, these people, you know, they've come from, they've fled horror. Um, Why don't we ask them what they would like to hear and experience? And of course, when we went in and said, they said, oh, we just, can we not have anything serious? Can we not have anything sad? Can we not have anything? I mean, this was people that have literally been in a, in a, in a, in a refugee um, home for, for three months that have come from Damascus or from yeah. Afghanistan. Yeah. Um, and, you know, they said they just, so we said, okay, we, we've, we got the shows for you. So rather than saying, go and see West Side Story, because, you know, you'll understand West Side Story because it looks like that on the streets of Damascus. They don't want to see West Side Story. They wanted to see the big, brassy operators with all the colourful costumes yeah. and whatever. And we realised that that's, and, and, and concerts, because they said that they like the, uh, not they, uh, the majority of the people that we spoke to in the, yeah. in the refugee home said, we, we, we love music, so we don't want anything with a story. And if there are going to be stories, we want colourful costumes and fun yeah. time. So yeah, we yeah. just gave them, you know, seats for the operator. And we have now a policy since 2015 that there are around 30 or 40 seats every night that are just available for uh, refugees or for refugees that are free. Um, from the refugee homes. So within the German system, of course, we can do that because um, money allows us to do that. But, but, you know, so, so we have, we worked on very different levels Mm -hmm. Um, and then we did concerts. Uh, we organized concerts so that we could then artistically work with people that have, um, um, uh, recently arrived and, and all of this. And then for example, that we do, we do workshops for Turkish parents. Um, who don't speak German, right. who want to be know more about opera. So we yeah. invite the parents of the children that are already either singing or from the schools, and then they get a small workshop in yeah. Turkish Excellent. about a particular opera or whatever, and they go and see the opera. Yeah, and yeah, very you good. You have to start with little baby steps. Yeah, yeah, and that's really good. Yeah, I like that a lot. And, I do like that a lot. And, and this, this has been very... Successful then. When we were doing when when we started on the back of me seeing your work there, when we started working with the Red Cross, what was also coming through to us was that people then suddenly become defined as a refugee rather than 
some of them were artists or you know they were like i'm a, I'm a scenic artist so we got a couple of them working painting some of our sets because that's what they wanted to do they didn't want to go and sing with us they wanted to do some design work or something and it was just really good to open that out well you have to also i mean you have it's it's nice to have the idea to help mm -hmm. but that's just words you have to put that into action somehow and action means actually not saying this is what we're doing this is yeah. sometimes saying what would you like what would you like to uh, do what would be good for you how could we help you what what are your ideas and mm. as you said whether it's to to paint sets not rather not being in something or for to come and have a workshop or to see a show or whatever they yeah. are but the, the, you know dialogue you know we we are in a we are in a fach we 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 do we do opera which mm -hmm. is the most communicative and collaborative of art forms but sometimes mm -hmm. the opera world is the least collaborative and least communicative of yeah. art forms. yeah 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 no i i do agree with that let's, let's take it slightly different direction i'm going to keep you forever but i just i can listen to you speak i can talk for hours james yeah, I, I like i can listen to you for hours. that of equality you know blah blah blah, blah. let's talk about to to the, the the process of directing as well um I, I on the podcast last week i had a mutual friend of ours alan clayton was on with me he's one week. of my muses he's not just a friend he's an amazing he's an amazing person isn't he you know he's one of chris purvis said the nice thing um, he said, the world's a better place when Alan Clayton opens his mouth. Yeah. And yeah. I would say not just when he opens his mouth, a rehearsal room mm. is a much more wonderful place when Alan is in a rehearsal room. Yeah. Uh, he's yeah, actually one of my favorite people on the planet. No, he's amazing. We, although I, as I say, I did the podcast with him on zoom and I think uh, lockdown is suiting his beard. Um, he sends me SMSs. Oh my God, wait till you see me, you know. And <laughs> but we were talking about the rehearsal room and we both said it different ways that um, me as a producer, him as a, as a singer, um, the, the rehearsal room and the process was one of my, our favorite things of, of, of the entire thing. And I, and I was saying for me, I love that I work in an office uh, for, you know, 18 months working on a production, casting it, um, getting the creative team together. And then in the rehearsal room, you start seeing it grow with that team. And the singer has to respond and work with people. But as a director, um, after you've gone through, when you run your own company like you, it's slightly different, but you've gone through all of the design process and you've got things passed. But then you're in there on day one and every single person in the room looks to you and says, okay, what are we doing? What are we doing? And they all sort of look into you. That sort of responsibility you obviously thrive on. But it, it's still a responsibility that, that for every minute in the rehearsal room, you've got to either lead the collaboration or or decide what's going on does that get easier or is that just something you you just continue to love anyway uh it gets easier because i can really now choose to work only with people that i like or respect or want um so i don't have to compromise on anything and let's face it in the theater in the music theater operas the same 70 percent is in casting so yeah. if you made the right decision with that soprano or that tenor or that bass, mm. based on that role, yep. vocally and uh, uh, performatively, if you've mm. made the right decision, then that's really mm. <laughs> the hardest part over mm. because the rest should be joy yep. and easy. It can be a complex struggle, you know, you know, when, when you're working on difficult roles, it is, but that's part of the fabulousness of it. But I mean, I must admit, I've been directing for over 30 years now and I've directed, I think over 150 uh, theater shows and operas and whatever, because I am a workaholic, although I don't like to use that word as we've discussed, um, a conjaholic. Um, um, and, and, um, 
there's, there's a number of things I have learned, James, and, and, and I'm very happy to be in a place where I can do that. Firstly, um, I don't come up with all the ideas. Yep. I expect my singers to present possibilities to me in the rehearsal room. Yeah. Uh, I am there to create a space of possibilities mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, where anything can happen. Mm-hmm. And of course, you can do something, and you go, "That's a piece of shit," and you can change your mind about it. That's fine. But Are that's you good like that with yourself, Barry. Can you can you change your mind? Oh, and go I am the most self-critical, contradictory. I can come on Wednesday and say this is a work of genius, and the next morning go, "I've cut everything. It's a piece of shit." <laughs> I, 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 I I am so disposable with my ideas because I believe that you've got to you've got to the, the best theatre is it's organic. Mm-hmm. The creation of theatre is an organ organism. It's not. It's something develops with in the weeks in the room. The magic of the rehearsal room is that these, the process of the eight or nine hours a day of working is gradually, something is emerging. And this is the key word. I don't think that's why I hate directing or even producing. Mm -hmm. So I'd use the word conjurer, but I would also use the word emerging. Things come out. And who do they come out of? The singers. So it's my job to provide not just the space for that, but the safety net for that, in which the singer feels complete confidence that no one's judging them. They can behave really stupid. They can be big old dags and behave Mm -hmm. really stupidly Mm -hmm. and make mistakes musically. You know, I always say singers on the first, you know, two or three weeks, they say, oh, I'm sorry, 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 I got that wrong. And I go, there's no wrong now. I mean, the general rehearsal, yeah, you got it wrong. But (laughs) week two, there's no wrong. Stop apologising for making a mistake. For fuck's sake, you know? Mm. I swear? You am I allowed to swear? No, you're going to... Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. This is a problem. Uh, (laughs) um, So, um, you know, this safety net is very important. Now, a lot of directors don't give that safety net. People, I, I can't work through fear. A lot no. of my colleagues direct through fear. I don't think fear is a constructive force. No. I think you can you can be you can be worried about a premiere or have nerves, but yeah. nerves are a constructive thing. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. Fear to have fear in a rehearsal room is anti-theatre. It's anti-art to work in an environment of fear or humiliation. Yeah. And I'm not saying you know we all hold hands and it's very democratic because ultimately you know, I do make the decision and I ultimately, someone has to captain the ship. Otherwise it just doesn't happen. It's too, the apparatus is too big. Um, And the singers like that. They like to know that someone's watching going whatever, but, but, but ultimately why I love the rehearsal room. Why do I direct Mm. to be in a rehearsal room? I, the, the, the opening night and the show, it's all finished for me. Yeah. And I can excessively go, Oh, let's change that. The fun's over. The fun's over. These yeah. weeks, it's even more exciting for me to, than the preparation because I don't anymore in my set models or my uh, work two years before the, premiere, uh, before the rehearsals begin, I don't answer most of the questions that I have. I just yeah. create a space and I wait for day one of the rehearsals and I yeah. say, well, why don't we try this? Yeah. And, but to do that, you have to have had, I think, the background 
of 30 years to know what sure. to trust yourself. Yeah. And I now only work with people who I trust. So in, when I began my career, you know, you, you were working with everybody and I had mm. some really shocking experiences with singers who I won't mention. Um, <laughs> but the, most, that's the extra podcast. You know, yeah. That's, that's, that's the sensor. Yeah. That's, you have to pay for that. Um, <laughs> uh, on porno hub or something. Um, so, um, um, that's an idea. Um, so, um, no, you have to, um, uh, you know, I, I, I now, the experiences that I had, I don't go into a rehearsal room without knowing who is going to be there, either because I've worked with them before or I've seen them in things that I just think they're so electrifying, it's going to be fabulous. And even with that, I speak to people and meet people and have dinner, lunches and coffees with yeah. people before the rehearsal. So I yeah, very yeah. rarely... Uh, I'm shaking the hand of a lead singer on day one going, hello, I'm Barry. Nice to work with you. Let's, yeah. we'll start with the, with the sex scene at 10 o'clock. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, uh, completely. Work. So, so for me, it's, 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 I'm in a lucky situation, but um, this is what it's about to me to be. But I think you room. make your own luck, Barry, on that. Cause I, I do think that it's easier um, you know, to make those decisions. If you're in a position of power, however transitory that power is, if you're in a position of power that if, if I'm choosing the cast today, then I'm powerful in that position. If I wasn't in the same job, it wouldn't be any power at all. It, it's just about choosing the people. But I often with, with singers as well, singers often say to me after auditions, when they've got the roles, um, you talk to me more than um, you listen to me sing. And I, so I wanted to know whether I wanted you to work with me for two months. You're in my rehearsal room, you know, you know, you representing the company. I want to know who you are. As I'm, I'm taking it red that you're a good singer, otherwise you wouldn't get in this room. And then we, I, I like someone more than others, of course, but it's, it's about that personal connection that when you're all in the room together, that sort of chemical reaction can work. And, you know, to give the directors, because I don't direct, the best possible team to work with and, and take away as many other problems and issues as you can to go now now the work is to, to now the works to create the art you know we've given you a great team and now now you can do that with a, with a free hand yes and i think also it's about saying to a singer if you've made the decision to be an opera singer i mean if you want to be a concert singer and sing oratorios and leader recitals Lots mm -hmm. of singers do that. And they say, I don't know. But don't come into my theater and don't come into my rehearsal room unless you are burning mm -hmm. with a desire to find something within yourself mm -hmm. and to be on this stage. Mm -hmm. And don't tell me that the music is the most important thing because I'm not interested in hearing that because yeah. it's called music theater and there are texts and stories. And of course, vocally, I want it to be great. But as I say, like you said, James, I assume that you can sing, uh, mm -hmm. otherwise you wouldn't actually be even getting in the door. So, you know, I'm, I'm also believe very much that it's the singer's responsibility to say that, for example, I'm very lucky also, I work with wonderful singers mm -hmm. all around the world who are not interested in purity and perfection mm -hmm. and realize that sometimes in an opera, sometimes in a scene, sometimes in an aria, it's not about vocal beauty. In fact, it's the opposite of that. Yeah. Sometimes you have to be very bold. For example, I'll give you an example. Alice Coote in Agrippina. Mm -hmm. Now, Alice is one of also my favourite people on the planet. Mm -hmm. I've only worked with her once. I spoke to her yesterday, actually. She's oh, really? I adore this woman. I can't tell you how much I adore this woman and respect this woman. Yeah. And Alice was the first person to tell you that she's quite a complex person. And I don't think that's a surprise to, to her or anybody. So I don't think I'm saying anything that people don't know. But... 
Um, you know, Alice went to a place in Agrippina that was quite extraordinary. Now, mm. Joyce Di Donato was sensational in London, but a very different, I always say, it's like watching, one's watching, you know, Patti Lapone uh, do um, a gypsy and one's watching um, Imelda Staunton yeah. doing a gypsy. Mm. And both are fabulous, yeah. but both are very different. But what the, one of the biggest differences is, I mean, Joyce is one of the great, you know, singers of, of, of our time yeah. and, and, and an extraordinary, amazing woman. Mm. Um, and so is Alice, but in a different way. But what Alice did was sometimes Alice, without me saying to her, said, I don't think we should even sing this. I should just scream it, shouldn't I? Yeah. I mean, I, don't, I think that she's beyond music here. Yeah. Um, and so that, you know, Alice would be singing with an amazing voice and then suddenly the rest would come and she would just shout that line in Italian, spit it out. Yeah. And it came out of this rehearsal situation mm. and it came out of the work that was doing and it came out of her. And I go, that is yeah. music theatre. Yeah. That is the difference. Yeah, beautiful. I mean, I think that you've, you've described the whole... Uh, process of creation in, in a rehearsal room in, in, in five minutes. I think it's absolutely right. Because also, even with uh, not to eat, not even with artists at that level, if you're doing something sometimes, unless you're making an album um, recording, you, people are watching it on that night in the theatre that night. You've got to connect with them. And, and it's not about, as you say, always about the vocal beauty or the perfection. It's about the feeling that, that you that you and the audience shared on that particular night. Yeah, which is why I get furious uh, on YouTube to read comments when you're watching a YouTube performance that's live, mm-hmm. different if you're listening to the Deutsche Grammophon recording, but if you're watching a singer who's singing live yeah. and then you read some of the comments about, oh, the, the crotchet on, tw- on bar 34 was flat and, oh, my God, you run out of breath there and you're thinking, oh, my God. This, firstly, it sounds different on a YouTube clip as it yeah. does in the theatre, so yeah. come on, get real. And secondly, how outrageous mm. is, is if that's your priority to say that the crotchet was a little bit late or it was slightly flat or she ran out of breath when she's running around and yeah. rolling uh, in a, in a theatre production is sort of outrageous. And I, I don't, I think this whole idea of perfection and, and mm. whatever is, is, is very problematic because even in a recording, it's so subjective, but particularly yeah. in a live performance, yeah. you've got to feel, I always say to my singers, I've got to imagine that the reason why this character is singing is because they are at a, such an emotional level that words do not suffice uh, and the world has to stop for 10 minutes while they express this emotionality, which through its artificiality of form and structure is more real than someone speaking yeah. in real life. That's what it's about. And I said, and to do that successfully, that has to come from you. That has to come from your soul. That is your voice coming through your body. And that's the only way to do it. I can't direct that. So there are singers who are closed Mm. to their soul and closed to their own sense of identity. And they're they're the tricky ones sometimes because they can have enormous talent, but they can't somehow expose themselves. And I think the best singers and you know this from when you see them on the stage in your opera house and we you know from other stages the most extraordinary moments when you are watching a singer and you go they are opening up a window or a little door into their soul i am privileged to peek into this person's inner world and and it can be frightening and terrifying or funny and moving or whatever but this is what 
this is why we do it. This is what audiences get off on unconsciously. It really is. And this is, this is one of our house singers sings to us many, many times, a wonderful French soprano called Anne-Sophie Duprel. And I always say that I always, watching her sing and perform, I always feel that she's jumping off the cliff and she's not sure whether she's got the parachute on. And that's really exciting. It's really exciting. You know, she's not sure, yeah. we're not sure. And let's see. It's the old thing, circus acrobats. It's, it's type of walking. That's what we want. That's what the audience, is she going to get to that note? Is she going to be able to get that color to her? How can he sing that while he's doing that? Will she get it tonight? Yeah. I mean, I do believe in the old Barnum and Bailey's thing. I do mm. really believe that, you know, it's the thrill of the circus. And, yeah. and that's why live performance is something that still turns us on. Yeah. Well, I think that's as good a place. Barry, I could talk to you all day. Um, but you've got a dog to direct in the in the in your in the. I've actually got a dog to take for his little pippy <laughs> now. So he's been sitting here very calmly now. So, Barry, as I said at the beginning, I, you know, I, I admire you so much and uh, I find you inspirational. It's just great to hear you chat with such passion about it, and I'm sure people will love hearing you talk like that. And then, no, uh, it's a pleasure, James, and I hope and I really I do look at all my friends and colleagues uh, in the UK opera scene and music scene and theatre scene, and I have such sympathy and empathy because I know what you're going through. Through and you don't have the financial support and structures that we that we have here, but we are thinking of you all in in Germany and um, and hoping that we can all see each other very very soon. We'll get out of this soon. Barry Koski has been an absolute pleasure. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Thanks, James. You have been listening to From the Producer's Office, a series of informal podcasts with James Clutton. For more information on Opera Holland Park, please visit www.operahollandpark.com.